You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 35. Today we're asking the question, what's the relationship between leading and lagging indicators? Let's get started. Hey everybody, my name's Drew Ray, I'm here with David Proven, and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University. We've had a number of requests to talk about this topic, so David, we're just going to jump straight in. What's today's question? So Drew, today's question is all about safety performance indicators, and you're right, we have had a few regular listeners to the show just ask us, can you talk about leading indicators? So we thought we we thought we might do that, and I recall Drew a you know, an early paper that I've talked about a lot in my career is a paper by Blewett in 1994 that said beyond lost time injuries, you know, developing positive performance indicators for safety. And it was sprouting in 1994 that it's so good that we've moved away from looking at lost time injuries because they're not a good indicator of safety. And I suppose when you combine that uh, with Rasmussen's work in the 1990s about dynamic risk modeling and complex systems and the performance boundaries of work, you know, this discussion that we've been having about performance indicators we've been having for in safety for a very long time. And sometimes it feels like we haven't made a lot of process. So, you know, from my point of view, what I think we're trying to do with safety performance indicators is to, you know, maybe a couple of things, maybe on one hand to understand our business, maybe to understand our safety risk, maybe to predict about where the next incident might occur and to help us determine, you know, the next best course of action. So Drew, the opening sentence of the paper that we're going to review today is from a couple of uh, authors who we, um, I don't think we've spoken about much, but um, they're quite prolific in the safety space, Ryman and Pete Kennan. And the opening quote is, the management of safety relies on the systematic anticipation, monitoring and development of organisational performance. David, I'm going to jump in there just with a hard disagree. Not, not just to that sentence from the paper, but from all of that rubbish about understanding our business and understanding safety risk. I think that's the rhetoric we put around performance indicators. But if we genuinely cared about those things, then we'd care about whether the indicators we regularly use are actually capable of doing those things. And the analogy I like to use is the stock market. So lots of people are obsessed with the stock market and whether particular stocks go up or down. David, I don't know about you, but I'm old enough to remember watching the daily news, if that's still a thing. I'm not sure it's still a thing, Drew, and I think the ABC in Australia are just about to can the 7.45 news segment every morning that I think has been going since 1939. So there you go. Well, it always used to be a thing, at least, that you would get a half-hour broadcast with events around the world, and it always finished off with the sports and a section about the stock market saying which stocks had gone up, which stocks had gone down, and some geeky guy giving an explanation for why those particular movements had happened on that particular day. And it always bugged the heck out of me, because even if we know that stuff, even if we knew the movement of the stock price, even if we know the supposed explanation for those movements, it's useless for knowing what's going to happen to those stocks tomorrow. I don't want the guy telling me, oh, on the back of poor earnings report, price of Woolworths went down. I want him to tell me Woolworths earning has gone down, so their stock price is going to fall tomorrow. And the current movements don't tell you any of that. You know, sometimes if a stock goes down, it means it's going to keep going down. Sometimes if it goes down, it means it's going to go back up again. And if we could predict which one, everyone would be making a fortune. 
I mean, in fact, there is a whole industry of people that are making a fortune, but they're making the fortune out of trying to tell other people what the answer is to the question of whether particular stocks are going to go up or down. They're actually really bad at the bit of predicting stock market movements. So, Drew, are you saying, so I suppose what you might be saying is economists have been working for 100 years to predict or or longer than 100 years, and they're still probably not much better at knowing what's going to happen next because they say any system that involves people is, you know, inherently irrational. So does that mean that we've been at it for 30 or 40 years in safety and we've got another 60 or 70 years before we realise that it's a bit futile or, you know, maybe we can kind of change some tack. Maybe through this podcast, we'll try and see if we can change some tack before we uh, run out of time, so to speak. So when it comes to safety performance indicators, it's something we all kind of want to explore in our organisations. And when we talk about a lot of leading indicators and particularly the leading indicators that we will talk about in this study, Drew, I think what we describe them is that they're evidence of safety work. So we're looking at safety work activities and either the quality, the completion, the frequency of those safety work activities. And we're assuming that that gives us an insight into the risk control environment around the work that's happening in our workplace. Now, we've talked a lot about the relationship between safety work and the safety of work. So it probably won't come as any surprise to say that the first question we've got to ask when we think about these leading indicators is, is there any relationship between these safety work activities and the safety of work? And that's question number one. And question number two would be something like, even if we did know what that relationship was, how do we know that the indicator is going to be reliable and give us any any insights? Yeah, it, it does make a sort of sense that if you think this is the stuff that we do to create safety. So if we measure how much of it we do, and we measure the volume and quality of those activities, then that tells us how much safety we've created. And so it's going to match measurements of safety in the future. Just as a logical process, it makes total sense to use measures of safety activity as leading indicators. But logic and reality don't always line up. Yeah, there's a bit, there's a few big uh, ifs and buts and, and maybes or definitely knows in um, in that relationship. So look, let's talk a little bit about, let's just put some definitions around this so that we know what we're what we're talking about. So when we're defining performance measures, there's a few, there's a few sort of definitions that the paper that we're going to talk about talks to. And one definition of a performance measure or indicator should be could be as simply as the metrics used to measure the organization's ability to control the risk of accidents. Another definition is safety indicators as observable measures that provide insights into the concept of safety that is actually very difficult to measure directly. And Drew, you've talked about the difficulty of actually measuring safety directly in the past. Yeah, I really like that definition because it gives us a really clear understanding of what it is that we're actually doing. There is no such thing as a measure of safety. So everything we have are indicators. They show the presence or absence of safety. And so when we talk about leading and lagging, it's never leading safety or lagging safety. We need to ask leading and lagging compared to what? And your intuition about this doesn't always work. So, you know, a common misconception is that lagging means that we're measuring safety in the past and leading means that we're measuring safety in the future, trying to predict future safety. But that's not really what we're doing. A clearer thing is to say that leading and lagging are relationships between different measurements, different indicators. So you don't say that this is a leading indicator or this is a lagging indicator. You say this indicator leads this other indicator, or this indicator lags this other indicator. The colour of the sky tonight is a leading indicator of rain in the morning. The number of people attending a Trump rally without masks today is a leading indicator of the number of Trump supporters who are going to realise the hard way that COVID-19 isn't a hoax. 
you know, one thing leads another thing. They're both things that are measurements. Yeah. So Drew, so this, so so I like the way you've described that. Like uh, an indicator is a leading or lagging some other indicator because that's going to be directly relevant as we talk about results of this paper. But I think if this idea that you know we can find these indicator that predicts safety accident in the future, then we can act on those indicators and we can reduce the risk of future accidents. So that's a really sensible thing for organizations try to do. So let's just hold this question is that if we could predict safety accidents effectively, then we what are the things that we'd be kind of looking at to try to help us with that prediction? So that's our that's our question, Drew. And now the authors, I liked it because the authors really stated clearly their primary goal. So the authors um, of the paper that we're just about to introduce said that their primary goal in this research was to investigate the relationships and the temporal interdependencies among safety indicators collected during the delivery of a large rail infrastructure project in Australia. Lots of words, but basically they're trying to do exactly what you just said, Drew. You do know what what leads and what lags, what other things. Yep. Now, I, I love that as a research question, but I'm just going to throw an idea into our listeners' minds to think about as we go through this paper, and we're going to come back to this later. And that is, if it's really true that there is some sort of causal relationship, that an indicator now predicts safety in the future, then no one is just going to sit back and watch that happen. The moment you see a leading indicator that you think tells you an accident is going to happen, you're going to act on it. And that's going to reduce the probability of the accident in the future. It's not going to increase it. Which means that your leading indicator is then not going to be a good predictor of your lagging indicator because you predicted an accident and the accident didn't happen. And so I just want to leave that thought in your minds because we're going to come back to it. Great, Drew. You've actually intrigued me. Um, I'm really, I'm looking forward to what you're going to say about that. So the paper today is, is titled Leading or Lagging? Temporal Analysis of Safety Indicators on a Large Infrastructure Construction Project. So pretty much the researcher's aim. The authors are Professor Helen Lingard, Matthew Hallowell, Rico Salas, and Payam Paradesh. Now, Helen and Payam are from RMIT in Melbourne here, Drew, well, home city where, where I'm based. And some of the others are, well, Matthew's from the University of Colorado and Rico is from Chevron, which is um, an oil and gas company in the US. So it looks like some kind of collaboration across a couple of universities. I'm not quite sure how it came about, but uh, at least I'm not familiar with Matthew Hallowell's work, Drew, but I'm quite familiar with Helen Lingard's work. So Helen's very big in construction safety and has been for a long time in terms of safety research in the construction industry, particularly looking at how those projects are managed over the entire project life cycle. And Matthew Hallowell does a similar thing in the US. He runs a big research network in construction safety for major projects. So these are very sort of big names, one in Australia, one in the US. This paper was published in 2017, Drew, in the Journal of Safety Science, which is the source of quite a few papers that we've reviewed on the podcast. And those who listened last week um, to episode 34 about how to source and review research data will, will have sort of heard you talk about safety science as um, sort of one of the big four safety journals. So Drew, the method they had for this is so... There was all this data that was collected as part of a routine reporting on a large infrastructure construction program in Melbourne. So multi-year, multi-billion dollar construction project, it involved the construction of new rail track, new rail stations, upgrades to existing stations, 13 level crossing removal projects involving railroad grade separation and the construction of an entirely new rail bridge. So all of the principal contractors, and there were multiple contractors on this project um, working for the government, all of the principal contractors reported their data monthly to the client. So they had lots of different contractors, a huge scope of work. 
Although there were different companies reporting, according to the paper, the definitions and the processes for data classification was consistent across all of the different contractors. And then all of that data was carefully specified and carefully checked by, by the government as the client. And so the data period that the researchers looked at was between January 2010 and January 2015. So Drew, that's kind of, you know, that's where the, where the data came from. Do you want to talk a little bit more about the method? Sure. So, so let's just start with some of the measures they used. One of, one of the main things they used was the TRIFA. I always get this wrong, David. Can you just expand out TRIFA for us? All right, let's go. So uh, total recordable injury frequency rate. Lots of industries have lots of different definitions, but usually it's it's a recordable injury will be a combination of lost time injuries and medical treatment industries and some sort of restricted work case where a person is incapacitated in some way from their normal duties. And you count up all those number of occurrences that you have that are work-related and you kind of divide that by every million man or person hours that your organization works and gives you a number. And if you believe everyone that a number of one or one incident every million hours is, is sort of where lots of organizations say they want to be, and if it's higher than 10, they probably start to get a whole lot of attention from their senior management. And most of the other variables are safety activities. So number of toolbox talks, number of pre-start meetings, number of safety observations, number of site inspections, number of safety audits. And then some of those are outcomes from those activities. A number of non-compliances, number of hazards reported, number of hazards closed out, a number of regulatory penalties or infringements. Etc. So you get an idea of the types of things that they were measuring, activities and the results of those activities. The researchers had a justification for why they used TRIFA rather than any other sort of lagging indicator. But this was a little bit odd. They say, firstly, that it's harder to manipulate, which is absolutely 100% not true. And that it, because it follows a normal distribution, which is really weird because if your TRIFA follows a normal distribution, something has gone really wrong. <laughs> Incident rates are supposed to follow a thing called a Poisson distribution. And if you think about it, that should be absolutely obvious. A, a normal distribution is a bell curve. It's even on either side. But you can't have negative injuries. So you can't have a bell curve of injury rates. It would just get cut off. And the probability distribution can't be symmetrical. If it is symmetrical, something has gone wrong. I also really wish people wouldn't use injury rates instead of raw numbers, and we'll get back, get into this a little bit later. But one of the problems with using rates is it introduces false correlations between things. And I'm a little bit sceptical that some of the results they find are actually correlations that they've accidentally caused by using rates instead of the raw numbers. But despite that sort of problem, I think the paper is actually really quite good. All of this is just illustrating how hard it is to get indicator statistics right. These are four highly competent and experienced research professionals. The paper's been peer-reviewed, it's published in a respectable journal, and it's still got some serious statistical problems in it. Which just sort of shows that you, know, you can't just randomly throw around safety injury numbers and expect the numbers to mean something. So Drew, that's why I love doing the podcast with you because I mean, I'm, I'm learning every day about statistics because quantitative stats is not something that I've spent a lot of time you know, re researching in. So what I might get you to do is just continue on with what they did with the data because um, there's a chance that I'll misexplain it. Sure. So, so these are just fairly straightforward steps. And, and most of these are steps that you do just to eliminate possible objections. So the first thing they did is that they did what you call normalizing the data, which means dividing each number by an estimate of the total number of hours worked that month. 
So, you know, otherwise things like the number of inductions just go up with the number of people and hours worked or the number of injuries goes up in winter instead of in, you know, with the number of hours that are happening. So first thing you do is you divide the, the raw numbers by the rates. Um, you know, the trouble is when you divide two numbers by the same third number, automatically the result is always correlated. That's just a mathematical fact. Second thing they did is they converted the data into time series, which is a fancy way of saying that they paired each number with a timestamp so that you know which order the things came in. So you can look at this as a graph rather than as just a collection of numbers. And you know, most of the work in this is just converting things like November into a number 11 so that you can put things in order instead of just on a bar chart. Third thing they do is they tested the data for normality. The reason for this is that many statistical tests assume that data follows a bell curve because that gives nice, neat, stable statistical property properties. The big problem with this is that you know, people are just used to seeing bell curves. People see normal distributions all over the place. And actually, there's lots of things in nature that aren't supposed to generate bell curves. You, if you flip a coin and record the results, you don't get a bell curve. You get a thing called a binomial distribution. If you count injury events, you don't get a bell curve, you get a Poisson distribution. If you have a target for the correct number of safety observations, you're not going to get a bell curve. You're going to get something that is skewed, particularly with a big peak right around that target. And so if you test, if you test any of this data properly and you're still coming up with a normal distribution, you shouldn't be thinking, excellent, my data has the right statistical properties, I can run the test now. You should be thinking, this data doesn't say what it's supposed to say. Okay, end, end of that rant. Fourth step, they performed a difference transformation. The reason for this is just to get rid of seasons and long-term trends from the data so we can look at what actually predicts. Otherwise, you get no correlation at all because you're comparing winter to summer or things have been changing over time sort of with a long-term trend. And so the predictions don't work out. So all of those sort of four steps are about preparing the data, cleaning it up. The final step they do is mathematically complicated, but really easy to understand in practice. If you imagine they graph each of these variables on a sheet of clear transparent film and just lay them over the top of each other, and then they shift them back and forth to see where they line up. That's what they're doing with the mathematics, is working out you know, if you shift things in time, how many months forward or backwards do you need to go before one number starts to line up with the other number? So Drew, they've got 60 months of, of data, lots of data from lots of companies. They've got when the recordable incidents occurred and they've got all this information about toolbox talks and inspections and safe work methods statement reviews and all those other um, variables that they looked at. So let's, let's talk about what they found. And so you mentioned correlations and with that warning that Drew, that I wasn't aware of until you said that when you divide two numbers by the same third number, the results are, you know, uh, are always correlated. So I was already going to give a warning that correlation does not equal causation, and that's a podcast in itself. But let's just say what did come out of the data. What they what they found, and I'm going to run through a few correlations that that were statistically significant in the data. So they said that toolbox talks led Triffa four months prior, so they could tell what, when an incident was going to occur by what was happening with toolbox talks as four months earlier. And then toolbox talks lags Triffa for the next two months. So after an incident, they could tell you what was going to happen with toolbox talks for the next two months afterwards. The pre-brief led Triffa by two months. So looking at what happened in pre-briefs two months prior um, gave you an indication of what was going to have with Triffa. Triffa led safety observations by one month, which means that if you had a recordable injury, then the data could tell you what was going to happen with safety observations the month after. And then Triffa lags safety observations the next four months. 
So based on what was happening with observations, you could say what was going to happen with TRIFA four months down the track. And so this is kind of the data that came out. Site surveillance lag TRIFA at month two, which means two months after a recordable incident, the data could tell you what was going to happen in terms of site surveillance inspections. I don't know whether to keep going through this sort of stuff, Drew, or whether our listeners are already going to start to get a trend. So look, audits led TRIFA at month two prior, and then audits lagged TRIFA two months after, which meant if you didn't audit two months before, or didn't do an audit, you could tell what was going to happen with recordables. And then two months after a recordable incident, you could tell what was going to happen with audits at that particular location. So David, just to put this into plain language, and let's just assume that correlation does equal causation for a moment. This, this data tells us the most significant thing. What it's doing is it's telling us that toolbox talks cause a change in the TRIFA rates, but a change in the TRIFA rates changes the number of toolbox talks. That you know, side observations cause changes in safety, but changes in safety cause site observations. So this is not a simple relationship where safety activity causes safety outcomes. It's a relationship where safety outcomes cause safety activities as well. True and exactly right. I, I, was, I thought that listeners might be, as I was saying it in my own head, I thought listeners might be forming that view going, oh, I know exactly why toolbox talks go up the two months after an incident occurs or something like that. And so the authors conclude this. I mean, they, they saw this in the data and they concluded that the indicators that we generally, generally believe and talk about as being leading indicators are not always leading. So what you said, Drew, toolbox talks, pre-briefs, audit, non-compliances, safety observations, alcohol tests, drug tests, safe work method statement reviews, site inductions, they all led TRIFA. There was something in all that data where the, the statistics says we have an indication of what's going to happen to TRIFA. But they also lagged TRIFA as well, which meant when TRIFA happened, the data could always could also say what was going to happen to all those things on that site in the in the months after that incident. So it means that these safety efforts kind of maybe caused or caused something to do with, with safety, but then the safety also caused something to do with this safety efforts. So straight away, they sort of became, I wouldn't say confused, but it became clear from the data that it was a pretty complicated complicated system of kind of interactions. So David, I want to throw just even another spin on it because we don't even know that there weren't other safety indicators happening as well as TRIFA in the background here. So for example, the increase in site observations in the lead up to an accident could be that other safety data was telling them that there was a problem with this particular site. So it's not even necessarily that the observations are predicting future safety. It could just be that the same things that are warning them that an accident is coming are also causing them to start to do these other activities. Oh, I think you said that. I think you said like the researchers didn't necessarily design this data collection process. They just at some point got access to five years of data. So they had it because like what you said just then, if you were designing this from the starting point in a longitudinal type study, you'd try to observe and control for some of those other possible things. But I want to really point out to our listeners the impact of these findings because they confirm something really fundamental about finding good safety indicators. And that is that if you take action in response to any of your indicators, if you see an indicator and you do something about it, that automatically interferes with the relationships between the indicators. And so you'll never know if the indicator was telling you something useful in the first place. And this makes it fundamentally impossible to come up with good safety indicators in the way that they're trying to do in this study, which is not a failing of this study at all. This study is really for the purpose of proving this point. 
you, you cannot find good safety indicators by looking at your past data and trying to work out what correlates with other things because you've always got these cyclical, complex causal relationships. The only way to find out what's a good indicator is to go hands off and let the accidents happen. And no one is ever going to do that just to find out whether their indicator was true or not. Yeah, Drew, look, I think and the, the, the authors were really, really clear about this. They said, look, you need to know, like what you said, you don't know if your indicators are moving because you might have an incident or they're moving because you just had an incident and that's the way the organization is responding. The researchers also concluded that, you know, these supposed leading indicators don't simply drive safety outcomes, but they also drive these changes in activity. So we really need to look at third things which aren't related to the safety activity and aren't related to the safety incidents and outcomes and find this third thing that actually is, is more, well, related to, but, you know, independent of the movements in, in the others that we can actually look at, but not necessarily be manipulated through our responses to, to safety incidents. So it's complex, Drew. It's cyclical. I had a bit of a cringe when I read this after our podcast with on the Brady report, where we talked about the fatality cycle is is nonsense. That here's another paper that talks about you know a cycle of indicators and safety work in an organisation. Yeah, I think what they're saying here though is less about a cycle and more about a circular relationship between causal factors. And unlike when I called out the Brady report, I said there are tests you can do for data to check if it's cyclical. They actually ran those tests in this study. I think, Drew, like you said, is it, and I think our listeners will be able to see that it is cyclical. They'll know that, you know, they'll know the amount of activity that happens after an incident in their organization, and then they'll see that that just revert to a normal level over time and, and maybe bounce back again or something. So I'm sure that that cycle of safety work, if you like, is, is true. So, David, I'll just point out one final part of the paper that they did before we start to talk about the conclusions. So after they'd done this initial analysis... They did some tests for causality. Now, remember, this isn't an experiment, so we're not really talking about this proof that something causes another. We're more looking for how one indicator responds to another indicator. And if we can see some sort of time relationship where one thing going up sort of seems to cause something else going up. And, and so they showed that toolbox talks, audits, non-compliances, drug tests, and site induction indicators caused TRIFA in this sense. And they also showed that in that same sense, TRIFA caused the toolbox and audits. So that sort of, sort of confirms and highlights that things like toolbox and audits are behaving as both leading and lagging indicators. And it shows that some other things that you might think of as improving safety only were acting as lagging indicators. So things like the number of safety observations doesn't create safety according to this it shows you how much you're worried about safety because you've just had a bunch of incidents. So, David, there's a note that you've sort of put in here that I'll hijack, which is that leading indicators probably tell you more about how your company responds to safety incidents rather than telling you where the next one is going to occur. I think, Drew, this seed was planted in my mind by you, I mean, a couple of years ago now on another paper, which we, we might dig out and talk about at one point that said sometimes, and, and if I get it wrong, correct me, that you know these things like safety culture surveys are uh, probably a better, a stronger lagging indicator of the company's safety performance than leading indicator on the basis that if people are having no accidents, they think they're safe and they answer those surveys better than, a, than someone in a company that's having lots of accidents. Yeah, no, no one who's just had one of their work, workmates injured is going to tick, you strongly agree on a statement, my management cares about my safety. If I remember correctly, the finding is that safety climate in, in works the same way. It is both a predictor and a lagging indicator of things like TRIFA rates. 
So a little bit in the same way as we're talking about this safety work. So Drew, let's move on to the conclusions because, you know, the conclusions point out a number of things that are kind of, you've started here by by suggesting that they're well known in non-safety measurement, but, and I talked about economics and things earlier, but safety people probably really need some reminding of it. So do you want to, do you want to kick off the conclusions? Okay. So, so the first conclusion is that talking about leading and lagging indicators is just dumb. The paper doesn't call it dumb. Um, so their, their actual conclusion is talking about leading and lagging indicators is problematic. Uh, researchers can be very diplomatic. When they say problematic, they mean dumb. And the reason is because there's no neat arrow going from the past to the future that lets you talk about leading and lagging. Safety is performed by humans who react to the things that they see. If you have an accident, that influences the number of inductions you do and what goes into those inductions just as much or more than the number of inductions and what's in them influence the accidents. If all you report is TRIFA and your TRIFA drives your safety activity, then TRIFA is a leading indicator. It's a thing that drives the safety activity. It leads those activities. And that'll hold just until you start measuring the safety activity instead because you want to focus on leading indicators. And then safety activities become the leading indicators because they're now the things that you're driving that are causing other things. So this sort of leads to their second finding, which is they think that there is clear evidence of cyclical relationships between the indicators over time. Now, this isn't the idea of a safety cycle or a normal accident cycle. It's a relationship between the indicators that as you increase one type of activity, it changes another measure like TRIFA. But over the next period, that direction of causality changes and the TRIFA is driving the safety activity, which then drives the TRIFA. None of this necessarily means that safety is going up or down. Because remember, TRIFA itself is very easy to manipulate. So doing lots and lots of heavy safety activity can drive TRIFA down without changing your actual risk of an accident. So this is like direct evidence of the problem that the moment you start acting on any measurement, the measurement turns into a leading indicator. But it's not a leading indicator of safety, it's a leading indicator of the next thing that you're going to end up measuring. Third conclusion, this one they don't say directly from the data, but I think it's a useful message. They say this cyclical behaviour will not produce sustained improvement in safety performance over time. So my translation of that, and David, I'd be interested in your thoughts, is this is a direct response to the idea some people have that, yeah, I know the measurements are bad, but at least they drive good behaviour. The authors are saying, no, don't kid yourself. The cyclical behaviour is driving safety around in circles. It's not causing any sort of sustained improvement. Your measurement is just causing other distorted measurements. Andrew, I think sort of reflected today as we've been looking at this this paper, and, and I think that's exactly right. You know, we, we talk about all these things and we put them, the training compliance data, the actions that they get closed out on time, the investigations that, that get performed, and all of these other lists of 10, 12, 15 uh, indicators, or, or like I said, quality, frequency, completion of safety work activities. And then we say, oh, but we want the organization to be doing all those things anyway. And I think what this says is, you know, the organization will do them at some base level. And then when there's a, an incident, they'll do a lot more of that. And then it will revert to a base level. And then there might be an incident and then it'll come back up again. And I think it is just like going around in circles because we don't know, I suppose, we're seeing relationships in the indicators. And I think you and I are both concerned about whether, you know, what is the strength of relationship between all of that safety work activity and the safety of work. So, you know, driving all that activity may not may not be that useful anyway and yeah so i think it's a they're really good conclusions so when 
we'll go on to maybe what what could be measured, Drew, because I think that's the logical next step for us. If we've if we've sat here for for half an hour or so and we've said, all right, there's no real there's not a useful distinction between leading and lagging indicators. There may not be a strong relationship between the safety work that gets measured as leading indicators traditionally and and injuries or the safety of work. Then what should we measure, Drew? That's sort of the next question. So maybe maybe we'll talk a little bit about that. Sure, David, I I suspect here that we're going to disagree with each other and with the authors of the paper. So I'm just going to say the authors of the paper's opinion and then get get you to give yours. So the authors sort of conclude that the solution to this is to move more towards Eric Holnagel's style of measuring resilience, sort of measuring positive capacity rather than measuring safety activity. So that would be things like measuring your ability to respond to variability, measuring disturbances, looking for opportunities, monitoring for changes in the base state of the organization to anticipate things in the future that could have an impact on safety. Your thoughts? Yeah, look, I think, um, I mean, I think intellectually we'd, we'd like to do that. When I talk to organizations about having good, let's say, predictive safety conversations, I'm, I, I'd, I'd align a little bit more to some of the ideas about maybe Rasmussen and his modeling work and then maybe Snook and Drift and things like that, which he says, actually, I'm more interested in where there's goal conflict in my organization, where there's resource constraint, where there's change or instability in the operation, and as opposed to maybe some of those real real um, positive capacities that, that Eric might might talk about. So when I say that, I mean, is where in my organization is production rates say 20% below their target and that team might be trying to catch up to that target. Where in my organization is the maintenance budget underspent because uh, maintenance is being deferred or where in my organization am I am I got vacant roles in my frontline safety critical people, which means that there might be resource constraints in, in frontline roles and things like that. Where am I mobilizing new contractors into my organization? So I think what I'd be looking for in terms of like what would be an, an indicator to have a predictive safety conversation, I'd I'd probably be looking more towards, you know, where my organization's drifting, where it's resource constrained, where it's goal conflicted and things like that, which isn't quite what Eric's saying in his resilient potentials model. So so I think I would agree at least to the extent of you using statistics and using data as flags as to where to look. But, but I think all the things you've mentioned there are not things that are actually genuinely indicators, except that they say something interesting here. Because, you know, a 20% reduction in productivity could be a sign that things have slowed off and are just perfectly safe. Or it could be a sign that actually they're experiencing real problems and stress trying to make up time and they're dangerous. It tells you there's something interesting. It doesn't say which direction it's interesting in. Yeah, look, Drew, I think, and we've spoken about this before, I think an indicator will only ever give you a question, not an answer. And and that's what we should be looking for with our indicators. When when um, you know, organisations now say, "Oh, give me, give me, don't give me information, give me insight," or you know, they think their indicator is going to tell them what to do next. It won't. It will it'll raise a red flag, or it won't raise a flag. Let's just say it won't raise a flag. It'll raise a hand. And what you have to do is actually just go and ask a question to find out if it's something you need to do something about or not. So, so you don't want to go into the boardroom having you just presenting your indicator. You want to have already looked into it. And say, you know, we had this figure and so I went and looked and here's the explanation and this is what we need to do something about. Yeah. The the other thing that I would throw in is that I think actually that some of these things that we think of as leading indicators are much better thought of as good variables to use in safety experiments. One way to get around this cyclical problem 
is to have a clear thing that you're trying to improve and to have a control group. And so if we're using our indicators not to evaluate our general organization's performance, but we're using it to evaluate a specific strategy or a specific activity or a specific mechanism or even you know, a specific set of training, then that's when we can use these indicators as actually you know, genuine comparative indicators. But we're not looking for whether it goes up or down. We're not looking for whether it's leading or lagging. We're looking whether compared to the control group, it's good or it's bad. Yeah, Drew, I think um, it'd be great if we could be a bit smarter with our, or not a bit smart, a bit more deliberate with uh, our use of indicators in an organization and, um, and try to learn more about you know, how, they, how they work and what they tell us over time. So if that's the conclusions that we've sort of worked our way through there about the use or, or non-use of indicators, what are the practical takeaways for our listeners now? And, and maybe if I kick us off, I'd say the simple discussion that we have about leading and lagging indicators of safety is absolutely not representative of interactions in a complex system. So we've shown today in this paper that you know leading indicators or indicators can be both leading, they can be both lagging, and it's probably not a sensible kind of distinction to have. Yeah, let's just get rid of the discussion of leading and lagging indicators. If you don't like injury rates as a measure, and you certainly shouldn't, then say you don't like injury rates. Say, let's not use lagging indicators, let's use leading indicators. Let's just sort of leave that terminology out. It's not helping us come up with better indicators. Andrew, I think then the second one, so, so just use the term safety indicator, I suppose. And then the second one is that measurements of safety activity, or what we'd say is safety work, rather than the actual physical work environment is not the most useful representation. And the authors say this, they actually specifically talk about maybe it's not worrying so much about the safety activity and more looking for indicators of the physical work environment. I'm going to put a slight caveat on that, that if you are trying to introduce a new practice in your organisation, then absolutely you should measure the success of the rollout of that. So if you're trying to get people to do inductions, then measuring how many inductions people actually do is a good sign of whether you've successfully rolled out that practice. It's not an indicator of safety. It's an indicator of whether the organization is doing what you were trying to get them to do. Oh, Drew, I, I totally agree. But I think you were quite clear in that thing there is that you're measuring this to actually know if people are now doing the inductions like you want them to be doing them, as opposed to putting that on your safety scorecard for the next five years and talking about it as a measure of safety. The third practical takeaway we've got, Drew, is that you know, it appears that there are relationships between some safety work activities and recordable injuries. And the researchers conclude that it is worth us doing more systemic modeling to understand these relationships fully. But if you're out there at the moment in your organization and you've got these types of leading indicators that we've spoken about today on your safety scorecard, and you're telling your organization that these activities are leading indicators of your recordable injury rate, then these researchers have looked at five years of data done all the statistical testing and come and said, there are a few correlations, but we are not going to claim that there's a causal relationship and there needs to be thorough systematic modeling with much larger sample sizes of data before we can actually conclude that. So practical takeaway is don't be a professional who talks about these leading indicators as predicting TRIFA. I've got separate thoughts of my own about whether even researchers should be doing this sort of modeling with TRIFA as the target. But it's one of those areas where... Yeah, if you're critical of the ivory tower and critical of the way we do research, don't dive in and think you can do it yourself in your own organization. There's a lot of extra work that needs to be done before you can make those sorts of claims. And look, I think the last practical takeaway is, I think as much as anyone, Drew, you and I would love to know 
what information we can look at. And I mean, you spend all of your time researching what what ways can we look at and think about safety in a way that gives us some kind of predictive capability. I mean, that's what we do. So I'd hate the listeners to think that we're just not interested in trying to figure out what are the things that we can understand in our organization to give us a sense of, you know, what might be around the corner. But I think the last practical takeaway is that we are, when I say we, I think practitioners and researchers are still in search of what information exists in our organization that we can use to predict where safety risk is increasing. Oh, gosh, David, are you saying that like the quest for a reliable indicator is our version of mission zero? (laughs) It's a target we'll never reach, but we're constantly searching out there trying to get there. And it's the goal and the vision that matters. Well, (laughs) look, I think for the safety of work podcast, Drew, I think I'd be saying that the safety of work is the ultimate mission. So anything we do is has got to kind of be in service of the safety of work. And if that means finding the information in our organization, which gives us insight into the safety of work, then yeah, look, that can be a mission. We we might have to do a little bit of work on our branding though. Okay, David. So so what else would we like our listeners to tell us their thoughts about the episode? Look, we've we've done a couple of episodes which have been quite popular. Our, our zero harm episode, like you just kind of loosely referring to, Drew, was kind of popular. Um, our behavioral safety. Um, one was popular. I suspect that our leading indicator conversation might be popular. So I'd love people to chime in either either on LinkedIn or directly to us and tell us what leading indicators you're using in your organization. Tell us how you feel about them. Tell us how you use them to talk to safety risks within your organization and, and what kind of decisions you make in relation to those indicators. So if we can get a pretty if we can get a good leading indicator conversation going, then you know that's what I kind of like to see. So Drew. Today, we asked the question, what is the relationship between leading and lagging indicators? And um, what's the answer? Oh, the relationship between them is that they're both bunk, David. <laughs> both bunk. They're complex interrelated bunk. <laughs> Perfect. So let me just say that it's something that people can take away in non-Drew speak, which would be, look, it's, it's, it's very, if you're using leading indicators of safety management activity in your organization, it's very unlikely that that's giving you any predictive capability over where your next incident might occur. That's a little bit more diplomatic, but I think you just said the same thing as me, David. That's it for this week. We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. You can contact us on LinkedIn, or you can send any comments, questions, or ideas for future episodes. Hopefully you've seen for this episode that we do respond to those. You can send it to feedback at safetyofwork.com. 